It's 1700 in Tokyo, 10am in Zurich, 9am here at Midori House in London and 4am in New York City. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Monocle on Sunday starts now. And a very good morning to you. We're live in London and Zurich and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Welcome. Coming up, Juliet Lindley and Oliver Stribus are in Zurich. Juliet, good morning. Buongiorno. What have you spotted? Guten Tag, Emma. Well, here are the topics that I'm going to cover today. We have the eco-friendly Pope preparing to become the first pontiff to attend a COP meeting and the Italian Premier loses her top diplomatic advisor over a Russian prank call. Thank you for that, Juliet. Now, here in London, we have Simon Brooke holding the fort, looking at the weekend's papers. Good morning, Simon. What have you spotted? Well, I'm particularly interested in this uh, debate about how the Israel-Hamas conflict is threatening to push Ukraine off the political radar and, more importantly, I suppose, uh, threatening funding for Kiev's war effort. Thank you for that. Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule, will be checking in from Bangkok and we'll be hearing from our correspondent by the Bosporus. I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul and I'll be bringing you the latest news from Turkey. Thank you for that, Hannah. It's the 5th of November 2023. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. Now, it's not often I can say with some pride that Monocle Radio is all over the place, uh, but this is the situation today. We have two teams, two fully operating studios in uh, Zurich. We have Juliet Lindley and Oliver Stribus. How's Zurich this morning, team? Hey, we're doing really well, Oliver, aren't we? Nice, bright, sunny, hot. Oof. Yeah, it's a fantastic day. I love, <laughs> I love coming to the studios. You're in flip-flops. <laughs> Oliver's in flip-flops. Emma. Excellent. Well, in full bathing costume, I've got Simon Brooke. Are you, how are you coping with the heat? I'm coping with the fact that finally today it has stopped raining in London. It just seems to have rained non-stop for the last few days, doesn't it? But weirdly, when I looked out this morning, I thought, hang on, what's that stuff? Oh, I think it's blue sky, if I remember rightly. So very pleased about that. Give it a couple of hours. It'll all go wrong. How have your weeks been? Zurich first. This is uh, this is going to be chaos and we're going to do what we can. It's going to be like being at school. I'm going to have to call names out because I can't see you. But Juliet, how's your week been? My week was brilliant. It started off in Lisbon. We were there for three days. Unfortunately, a bit drizzly, a bit Londonish sort of weather, but very beautiful nevertheless. And lunches on the beach are always good, even if you're having to look at the massive waves from behind glass windows instead of being on the beach itself. I thought you meant lunch on the beach in the rain. That's new, that's a quintessentially <laughs> British thing to do. And you don't strike me as a kind of girl who has a lot of waterproof clothing. No, not that much. <laughs> and I don't bring thermoses with my tea in it either when I go and watch the drizzly rain. Oliver, how about you? Have you been on beaches with, with waterproof clothing or have you kept indoors in, with your students? Um, no, I had an excellent week because at Franklin University we have now academic travel period. Um, but I didn't give an academic travel. So basically students were not on campus and I had just like two weeks of quiet, serious work. You had a week so off, didn't you? Not exactly. I was doing other stuff, but uh, we are not only teaching. So I tried to catch up a bit with research. But uh, yeah, okay. it was a great week. I was lucky I did the Halloween thing, as I threatened to do, uh, in the pouring rain, hammering down. It went through even a good acoustic coat. It's ruined it. Um, but Emma, what did you dress up as? I was a pigeon. 
Pigeon. Yeah, yeah and my my son, my son my son my son was an eight foot tall inflatable dinosaur. It was brilliant. <laughs> it's absolutely marvellous. But there's a, there's this Are you very sure you're talking about Halloween and not about no, it's daily life in London, Oliver. Ah, okay. Daily daily life. Um, how about you, Simon? Were you dressing up? Uh, no, I wasn't. I have to say, I don't know what the Halloween equivalent of Scrooge is, but I really can't stand Halloween. <laughs> I've been trying for my niece's sake to get into it. Um, I've got a clutch of nieces who absolutely love it. And like your son, uh, Emma, the effort they put into the costumes is absolutely wait, wait, wait. amazing. The effort that he put well, in was zero. Sorry, the when I was, you put in. When I, was at a, when I was at a bus stop in the rain inflating my son... At five o'clock, I suddenly realised what work and love is combined. It was quite amazing. It was marvellous, though. I mean, he was, it, it, was, it was super fun. I'm sure he'll always be grateful. He'll remember that moment in years to come. I won't forget about it. Um, let's cross to Thailand, to Bangkok, where we can join our editorial director, Tyler Brule. A very good afternoon to you, Tyler. It's just gone four o'clock. I'm assuming that Bangkok and indeed, I think, Hong Kong, you're talking about, has calmed down after Halloween last week. It, it has, but it is, it, the weather is absolutely kicking off right now. It is, it is, it is, it is blowing like crazy. The sky has gone black. Uh, people are running for cover. It is the end of the rainy season uh, here in Thailand, and it's going off uh, with a bang. And there's lightning, and uh, I'm sure here's thunder in the background Tyler, in a moment as well. Tyler, do you need to take shelter, or should we sort of cross live and direct as you as you find shelter in Thailand? I, I'm not going to be one of those uh, TV correspondents. I'm not donning uh, a North Face jacket uh, just just yet. Uh, but I'm I'm in sort of se- semi cover. I'm at at a wonderful place called the Commons, uh, which we've covered uh, a variety of times uh, in, in the magazine. A wonderful community mall uh, in uh, in Bangkok, uh, and and um, people are literally running uh, in uh, for for cover as we speak. As it is. And an amazing sort of indoor-outdoor uh, affair, but uh, the indoors is, or the outdoors is definitely coming indoors as, as I speak. My goodness, I don't think has anybody actually made you go and stand outside in the rain. I have been made to stand outside in the in the snow. I once remember being in a news meeting, and they said, "Where's the weather going to be worst?" They now identified it on a map thanks to the weather person, and then they just went, "Right, Emma, you can go and stand there and report live from a blizzard." They, they, no one's ever made you do that, have they? No, no, no. That sounds like a very slow news day to me. But anyway. <laughs> all right. Tell us what's happening when Thailand or what, what you've been traveling all over the place this week, haven't you? It's been a full on adventure for you. It's been. Yes. Yeah, so since we spoke last Sunday, uh, I scooted across the border, was over in Shenzhen. Uh, so made, made the, uh, the remarkably fast trip, you know, 40 minutes by car. Some colleagues went by train. It's only 15 minutes. But uh, talk about sort of two worlds, uh, of course, uh, divided by a significant border, uh, even though, of course, you know, Hong Kong uh, and the rest of China, you know, one nation, two systems. Uh, but it's, it's a little bit more pronounced than that because it is, it is really something when you go to, to Shenzhen, you know, population approximately uh, 20 million people. And it's just, you know, it's just tucked over the, uh, you know, really over the hills and across the bay. But it is really a completely different world, and um, I, I was surprised by this feeling of shades of Singapore, um, it just in terms of landscaping and, uh, and 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 partly scale of structures. But it's but then it's like you've multiplied, you know, Singapore times one hundred. It's just this endless endless amount of you know, tech HQs, uh, and and of course just an endless apartment buildings to house these you know twenty million plus people who are working there. And what feeling does that leave you with? Um, it's it's just it's what's I think most striking um, when when you're there is 
just that that level of, of progress, but then also how China has has really moved. It becomes more of a bubble. I know we were talking about your know, payment systems last last week a little bit, and how to sort of one navigate the digital world. I mean, before I knew it, Emma, I found myself you know completely you know part of the Alipay world uh, because if you can't go and buy a coffee, you really can't function in that sort of normal context of just pulling out a debit or a credit card or some cash to pay for something. Um, it has to be on a mobile device, pretty much. And as, as a result, uh, I'm laughing because there's like furniture blowing around now. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think this, these like, signs are going to go about to blow off a building any moment. But um, it's uh, th- that's the remarkable thing, that you have to enter this digital ecosystem. Uh, and of course, that's you know, allows, uh, you know, allows for significant data collection. Uh, read that as you will um, in terms of how you function within China. Well, yes, I mean, I do have to ask, do you have any little friends who've taken up residence in your electronic devices? I, I was I, I sort of wondering, um, you know, who's actually, um, who is actually living um, in uh uh, in in my in my both my laptop and and in my mobile device as well. Um, just uh, uh, and given the fact that you have such a, a huge city, how international does it feel? Because I mean, Hong Kong is so international. But if you've got this fifteen minute train ride, do you suddenly feel as if you are in a place which is closed off a little bit more to the outside world? Yeah, very very good question. It was probably one of the first things I, I noticed. Um, I went to one of the big malls, um, Mix C, just to. Just to have a sample of, of consumer culture and just see you know, how people are are navigating brands and communicating, and I thought, well, what better place to go to to one of the bigger, more established malls in Shenzhen? And that was that was the striking thing. I mean, it was you know, a busy weekday, absolutely packed, but you you know there's there's no Western, you don't see any Westerners, uh, and then you don't see any Japanese or Korean businessmen either. Really, it is um, it is it is fully. Uh, it's it is fully Chinese, um, and of course there are people doing business with Huawei and and Lenovo and and lots of other big companies that are based there. But it's it, it's very very striking. Even though of course Hong Kong is not maybe as international as it was, um, but it almost felt like Hong Kong in the good old days uh, when you compared it to to Shenzhen and just really that it's a China story. The the energy levels I wonder about as well. I mean, we all we hear from the outside is a, a stories of the Chinese economy slowing down, of opacity of, of- Building crisis and whatever, but the the impression that you're giving me is that people are still spending. Is that right? Absolutely, and of course, you know a lot of these, uh, the, you know, a lot of the property stories and what we're hearing about uh, what's happening with all of the big developers in China. That it's going to take a little bit longer to to maybe fully bite for for the consumer, but spending seems um, alive and well. A lot of discussion, of course, is it starting to level level out? Um, ever so slightly. Uh, I think there is, a, you did hear a, a little bit of caution uh, for sure. But I think on the flip side, though, is just the, the sheer level of, of innovation um, was, I think, was, was really striking. I, I, was just, I was just surprised that you, you, know, you stumble across what you think is, oh, this is a cute little cafe. This is a nice little future competitor to, to Starbucks. And then, and then you read to this, what, what feels like a little independent player has a $5 billion uh, valuation and uh, also has 600 branches already up and down the country, or not even up and down the country, actually 
just spread between four cities. Wow. Um, tell us, well, let's be absolutely open with this. We do have a little bit of an email exchange before we go on air to say, OK, what do you want to talk about? Um, you sent me an email a few moments ago saying, I want to talk about adult play pens. Tyler, I'm not sure I should be asking you about this, but go on then. Um, well, hell. listen, after, listen, after, after, you know, as great as it was being in Shenzhen in many ways, uh, there, you know, there, there, is, there is a level of restraint, though, in China. It's, you, you do sort of get the sense, you know, we, we, had, we were out in an evening uh, the, other, the other night. Chanel had a big event. Nile Rogers uh, was, was performing. Now, you had a largely a, a, a Chinese audience, but it wasn't quite as toe-tappy as you would have thought. People were not into and Here you've got one of the, the, the great legends, uh, of course, of, you know, of, of pop music, um, just, of course, the catalog of songs that he performs with his amazing backup singers. But I don't know, the, 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 the assembled group was not quite as, as into it. Uh, so then we went across the border. Uh, we went headed back to Hong Kong on, on Friday, and... Checked into the the very lovely Carlisle and Company, which is on top of the Rosewood Hotel, and it is just a, a delight because, of course, Rosewood is you know they also run the Carlisle in New York, and they've taken the Carlisle brand and they've they've turned it into this kind of remarkable little you know, bite-sized morsel uh, of a of a space, which is everything you'd like from the Carlisle, but with you know proper Hong Kong service and just. Everyone impeccably turned out, and you start off in a great bar, and then you're looking back across to to Hong Kong uh, and just the dazzling lights, and then you're able to go to another secret bar with amazing bartenders, and then you can go to the Cafe Carlisle, and there's a great, just an amazing singer performing. And then after that, of course, there's uh, this being Asia, there's a great karaoke room as well, but all, all within a space where you feel completely contained in your own sort of lovely little world, um, and that was... um, yeah, and I had to, I had to say, you know, what did the GM said, "What did you think of it all?" I said, "Adult play pen." I mean, you know, who, who wants anything? Who wants anything more? I was slightly worried by by your suggestion of adult play pen. It was it's difficult. Anyway, how is how's Thailand now? What what are you doing there? Because I think this is a bit of a sort of a last minute trip, wasn't it? It is a last minute trip. Uh, I, I sort of trying to, trying to make my way back to Zurich. I, I tell you, I wouldn't want to be on a plane landing in Bangkok right now. I don't know if you've got any access to, to flight radar, but the planes must be circling um, very far away from the city right now, because I think you would actually say we're in the middle of, it's really like a proper hurricane right now. It is It is really whipped up, and everyone has, is properly run for cover. That sign I was talking about earlier that I thought might blow off did indeed blow off now. Uh, no, no, an electrocutor. It looks like, but uh, now here, uh, here for a few days, um, and it just actually feels as I wrote in my column this morning. Uh, again, another Asian city, which is just booming right now in terms of, I would say, general innovation. Uh, the amount of interesting openings. Talking to um, some analysts this week. Also, just the amount of spend uh, that you have out of out of Thailand uh, at the moment in terms of just. The way this market is consuming, despite you know all of the issues, as we know, new government in place, uh, that probably helps. There's finally um, some leadership um, in the country, uh, but feels very, very buoyant. Uh, there's an there's an article knocking around in the United Kingdom at the moment. I don't know if you've spotted it about how uh, pensioners in the UK are giving up on a, on retirement homes and bingo and really bad cottage pie um, to to enjoy an absolute life of Riley over in in Thailand. It seems to me that that basically this is the destination where we all kind of want to end up. Tyler, is that right? 
Well, you know, listen, and you can sort of say that our, uh, that the UK's neighbors to the north discovered this, you know, a long time ago. Uh, that the, you know, the Finns, uh, certainly, certainly the Swedes, the Norwegians, they, they've they've all been and they are living it up uh, in their communities, their their retirement communities down in in Hua Hin, south of Bangkok, uh, spending their their Swedish uh, and Norwegian, Danish, Finnish uh, state pensions, and of course, that goes incredibly far. Um, and and you have to think about you know not just your your life from Monday through to Sunday uh, in terms of accommodation, but but you know more importantly when it comes to to care as well. And this is what you know, you know obviously Thailand has made you know quite a name for itself in in terms of medical tourism. Uh, but now you almost have these people who who are coming here because you know they want to be resident in this country because the quality of care, the quality of medical is so high. And knowing, of course, that uh, yeah, your 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 Swedish crown um, or the euros uh, that you might have to spend, um, they really go the distance here. So, are we going to find ourselves all decamping in a, in about well a long way away from now, um, and all decamping to the Monocle retirement home? Well, maybe. I mean, Juliet could also sign up. There's a place called uh, this, just called the Swiss Village. Uh, there's a Swiss <laughs> Village down down in down in Hua Hin. So uh, I'm sure there's there's a beachside chalet with all of our names on it. Tyler, I'm not going to keep you any longer because I actually slightly fear for your safety, and we don't want anything nasty to happen on Monocle on Sunday. We want you back in one piece. Briefly before you go, I know it may feel like a million miles from you, but it's nearly Christmas here. Well, the lights went on in in Oxford on Oxford Street in London this week, so we're now full Christmas. I can't believe it um tell us monocle's going full christmas as well there's like some sort of crazy road tour of of of, of lovely markets indeed i mean it's also full christmas here trees are up <laughs> garlands are out it, it, it's it's and this is the funny thing i think that you know it, it's it's remarkable that it's this part of the world that really embraces christmas not the holidays not the festive season. It's Christmas. Uh, and it was interesting. One of our readers sent me something the other day saying, it's funny, like if you fly, Emirates has a promotion right now saying, you know, fly Emirates for Christmas. We've got the best lineup of Christmas films, etc., uh, where everyone is very shy to mention that sort of rather important Christian holiday um, elsewhere in the world. Uh, it's, uh, it's alive and well here. And yes, Monocle is having Christmas markets, uh, Emma. So we kick off in Zurich. Uh, that's the first weekend of, of December. We're also going to be then the following week, Santa, the whole shebang from Finland and elsewhere, will be um, in London, Midori House, uh, really in, uh, in its full Christmas stride as usual. But this year as well, also doing, uh, we'll be doing something in Hong Kong. Uh, we're going to be doing something in Murano. Uh, we'll be doing something in Toronto. And we will uh, be doing something in, in Tokyo as well. And might I add to all of that, uh, we're also launching, um, we're going to have two seasonal pop-ups. Samaritz is coming up uh, from the middle of December, and from next week, we're also opening a seasonal store in Paris as well. So we'll be um, at Tiptoe. We're launching. Tiptoe is an amazing, uh, amazing furniture brand out of France. We've developed a new stool with them, and uh, that's going to be premiering. But uh, Monocle's Outpost, just behind BHV. I know one of your favorite stores in Paris, Emma. Uh, we will uh, we'll be there for the full uh, Christmas season as well. We look forward to it, Tyler. Uh, do stay safe and happy travels. I Thank will. you so much Thank for joining you. us. Thanks. Uh, that was our editorial director, Tyler Brule, on the line from a very, very lively Bangkok. Um, everybody ready for Christmas then, Switzerland? How are we getting on over there? Oliver looks like he just went to cut his Christmas tree this morning. How's it going, Oliver? (laughs) Excellent. It's just what I was waiting for after Halloween. The next big thing. The The next big thing. Yes, and the kids want 
talk about anything else for the next uh, what is it two Six weeks or so <laughs> i think it's 50 days i think we have a, I, we have a, wee, a little a, a fair stretch ahead of us but it actually i sort of breathed a little bit of a sigh of relief when i saw about you know london's gone a bit bonkers but it hasn't gone full nuts yet and it sounds as if zurich is taking its time as zurich does um i felt quite relieved actually that i wasn't in bangkok where they've where they've gone full christmas simon too much, too much Christmas, isn't it? I have to say. Do you try so, and ban Christmas in the same way that you ban Halloween? No, I, Christmas I like. <laughs> I, have to say, I, I hated Christmas, and now I'm back into it again. Why did you hate Christmas? Christmas. Um, I just found the sort of commercialism. Uh, you know, like a lot of people, I found that too much. But actually, then I just thought, oh, what the hell? Let's just go with it. You I, know, I didn't realise you were just... such a Scrooge. <laughs> I used to be, but now I've been converted. Because I think it's one of those things when you're a kid, Christmas is the most exciting thing ever, isn't it? And then you kind of rebel. And my rebellion seemed to go on way beyond my teenage years. Oh, Christmas can't stand it or whatever. And yeah, now in the last few years, I've just thought, I think actually like a lot of people, I'm realising that Christmas is not about material things to sound very smug and you are going you're going Sorry. way down Sorry, some it's scale sunday, here it's sunday it's it's <laughs> i think i think perhaps more and more of us are realizing aren't we that it's about not just what you can buy but it's about family friends it's about taking time off from work and it's about a bit of sort of contemplation and thinking about the year that has just gone and the year that is to come I so in my world it's hellish logistics well, got, Julia, what do you do, you do you have that oh god who do i have to see this week Emma, yes. No, not really, actually. Maybe because we don't have family in the country as much as you do, possibly. Half of my family is across the ocean in Trinidad. The other half is in Switzerland, but that's easier. They're around the corner. But Emma, what, are you are you trying to juggle Christmas Eve, Christmas Day? What do I cook? We're not even talking about it. We're just not even... Oh, well, for on. starters, it's the 5th of November. So so we've suddenly found ourselves in a monocle on Sunday, full Christmas special on the 5th of November. They'll rerun this. <laughs> oh, no, it's just, it's just one of those things. It's The, 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 the food's the easy bit. Just, because you just part? It's, it's, um, it's, it's, other, it's other people. It's, it's other people. <laughs> They're it's, not it's listening, are they, Emma? They're not listening. <laughs> They want to see us. I don't know why, because we're awful. It's it's that under, it's that really really strange thing that you think right. If you go there now and we go there then, and by the time you finish Christmas, you're absolutely in pieces because you're so tired. And no one sat down and had a drink and had, and put a silly hat on. I know we have various pictures going through the through the years of like Twelfth Night, which is when you take all the stuff down. Of my husband asleep in a chair because he's so exhausted by Christmas. And you're doing all so, the heavy lifting. Everybody's the doing the heavy lifting, but of course it is. A time for joy for everybody. Um, right, shall we have a look at the news? Let's do a major, major sort of uh, handbrake turn in terms of uh, covering uh, what we want to talk about on Monocle on Sunday. Um, I know, Simon, you were talking about, I think we have to talk about um, Israel, Hamas, Gaza and the unfolding humanitarian crisis. But there's a, there's a second story emerging this weekend, isn't there, which is about how Ukraine is literally now feeling like it's at the back of the class, putting its hand up, going, please, please, please pay attention, pay attention to us. Yeah, I think it's interesting, this sort of connection between um, Israel and Ukraine. The Times of Israel is reporting that President Zelensky was planning a visit to Israel, actually, this uh, this coming week. Uh, but the trip, according to the paper, is now up in the air because of a, a leak to Israel's Channel 12 news service that uh, uh, by a Ukrainian diplomat, um, uh, according to the... Well, sorry, the the Ukrainian diplomat is telling the Times of Israel that that, uh, there was a leak to uh, 
Channel 12 News, um, according to this diplomat who's unnamed. Uh, he wanted the trip, Zelensky wanted the trip to be public when he stepped on Israeli soil, but he's very disappointed. So I think this is really interesting how um, President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky and other supporters are trying to sort of keep support, both financial, political, um, you know, uh, sort of general support for Ukraine, closely wrapped up with support for Israel. Um, you know, it's just interesting that um, uh, Netanyahu hasn't, uh, uh, and Zelensky haven't actually visited each other's countries since um, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia in February last year. Uh, but then, of course, what we've just had recently is this news that uh, Hamas has been visiting Moscow um, at the invitation of uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, and uh, Russia has also been introducing resolutions against Israel at the UN. So you can see how closer relations between Israel and Ukraine would make sense. And I think for a lot of us, you know, who are Ukraine backers, if you like, it's rather sad to see the Republicans um, in uh, in Congress decoupling funding uh, from uh, funding for Ukraine from funding from uh, sorry funding from Israel from funding for Ukraine so Israel is getting the funding uh, the Hill the uh, the uh, the news magazine uh, reminds us that um, there are already concerns uh, by Ukraine even before Gaza. Uh, broke out that Congress would um, fail to include funding for Kiev in a temporary government spending bill um, because of these sort of factions in the House Republicans uh, and those who've uh, who've fiercely resisted it. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how can supporters of Ukraine keep um, that connection with Israel going. I mean, Oliver, just listening to, to the, the sort of the, the stall that Simon has just set out, it's an entirely global one. And one wonders where in history or where in the world we have seen two major wars going on simultaneously and the world not knowing whether to turn left or right, where to look. Yeah, I think what is interesting, we look we look at it very much from the perspective of the attention that the US especially, but also uh, European states are giving now to Ukraine relative to Israel. But I think we don't talk enough about the effect of, of this on public opinion in Israel. I mean, it was uh, always very disappointing that Israel didn't took stronger side with Ukraine in this conflict. Uh, but now the way the Russians positioned themselves, I mean, this will have a huge impact on the public opinion in Israel. I mean, the, the government didn't want to take such a strong position also because of the strong connections of a large part of the population in Israel with Russia. But I think after what happened now, this, this public opinion will shift quite a bit. And um, this is I mean, as cynical as it might sound, but it's also kind of a window of opportunity for the Ukrainian government to get much stronger support from Israel. That's interesting what you say, because actually, um, staying with you, Oliver, the, the, the Ukrainian uh, president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has, has said in the last 24 hours that Israel... Gaza's conflict is taking away the focus from the conflict in Ukraine, which is what we've just mentioned. But he said this is one of the goals of Russia, you know, that, that perpetual desire to destabilize, which allows Russia to take advantage. Yeah, I'm not sure if, if this is actually true. I, I, I mean, I haven't seen really trustful sources about the involvement of Russia in this. There is lots of of course, this is in the interest of Ukraine to put it this way. They might be right or wrong. We just don't know yet. But I think it wouldn't be a very smart move, uh, move from Russia, to be honest. But I mean, they, they've made many not very rational wrong decisions over the last two or three years. So who knows? It, and there is this um, 
fear now, isn't there, um, Simon, that there is this... The, the, the war is grinding in Ukraine now that we have what's known as you know, a war of attrition where nobody is making any kind of advantage that Russia is grinding on, Ukraine is grinding on. Ultimately, by all accounts, this uh, this allows Russia to, to regroup, to, to, to reassemble its... Um, it's arsenal. Um, but that that awful feeling that this thing is absolutely going nowhere for a very long time. Yeah, I think um, one of the, the concerns as well, and we saw this week, Giorgio Maloney, the uh, Prime Minister of Italy, was subject to a prank call by um, two Russian uh, radio broadcasters. And she, they actually got her to admit the, that, that uh, European leaders are getting a bit tired of the conflict in Ukraine and are looking to uh, bring it to a conclusion pretty quickly. Um, I think probably, you know, a lot of people thought, a lot of us thought that that probably is the the, the situation. But to have the Prime Minister of Italy to to actually admit that um, is a huge goal, um, a a huge bonus um, for Putin, I think, and and is is really worrying. And of course, this, I think, uh, if you look at the situation, is probably the biggest challenge for uh, Vladimir Zelensky and his government, just to sort of, to try and persuade European leaders one more heave, you know, just give us this funding, just give us this support, and then we'll win this battle, this war for you. And I think it's really important for them to emphasise as well that they are fighting a war on behalf of the US, on behalf of Europe. Um, you know, this is a gift, really. If you if you want to oppose, uh, you know, uh, Russia, if you want to oppose an autocrat who is trying to destabilize the country, uh, destabilize the world, you don't even have to put your own boots on the ground. You know, Ukraine is doing this for you. Just um, provide this funding. And in fact, you know, we are talking about billions of dollars, which might be a lot of mo- a lot of money. But actually, if you put it in the big scheme of things, in terms of U.S. budgets, uh, the the defence budgets, it's not a huge amount of money. Uh, Juliet, talk to us a little bit more about what happened to Signora Maloney. She had a, she took a phone call, wasn't she? She was taking, she thought she was talking to officials from the African Union, but in fact, it was a pair of Russian comedians. And she said, "There's a lot of fatigue with from all sides, and the problem is to find out." a way which can be acceptable for both without destroying the international law i mean these are these are these are huge statements said which which again russia will will rather enjoy well, exactly. And she did tell a news conference that she said there was no evidence that the call by the Russian pranksters was part of a Russian propaganda campaign. And she took that opportunity to reiterate her country's support for Ukraine. But yeah, she was caught completely off guard. And she was also saying that Italy is not getting enough support. And it's cracked down on migration. But the price of her falling for these for these two <clears throat> known as Vova and, and Lexus is that her top uh, diplomatic advisor has had to step down. He's a he's a gentleman with a with a strong with strong credentials. He's a former ambassador to NATO and former ambassador to Israel and Francesco Talo has had to step down because of these prank calls that clearly they were engineered by these uh, Russian comedians in September but they were only released this week online so she's obviously not the first high-level figure to to fall for them. Uh, We all recall Angela Merkel as well as Erdogan and the Polish President Andrzej Duda and even Prince Harry being victims for these pranksters. I mean, how do we feel about the fact that Georgia Maloney blamed her staff for not screening the callers? And she said she had a doubt about the identity, but no certainty. And, and um, you know, one, one wonders if she's, you know, she's trying to throw someone under the bus here. What do you think, Juliet? 
Well, yeah, you could put it that way. I mean, at the end of the day, it is it is her it is up to her to have known. And the call lasted for 30 minutes and she she said that she had some doubts. This is what she's saying later on with um looking back, but she of course blamed her staff for not adequately screening the caller. Of course, the opposition, the Democratic Party are asking the Premier to inform Parliament about the incident. They're charging that it uh it clearly raises national security questions. And of course, then people are wondering how is she doing? And with her government and how is um, you know how, how is her coalition doing as always she's challenged and people are asking me I mean is she, how long is she gonna stay uh, well she's actually trying to reform the uh, process by which the prime minister is elected she's pushing for a direct ballot and we'll have to see how that goes but um, if elections were to be held however Emma it must be said that her party would still be the first in the country Oliver the prank calls how much damage does that do to a politician uh, not much. Um, I'm <laughs> not much. Uh, we looked together at the polls, just Juliet and I, before the uh, before we started here, and it's uh, incredible how strong her party is still in the polls. And um, so, as long as she's so strong in the polls and her coalition partners, um, which are her direct competitors, remain as weak, um, she will keep going. And uh, I think we. Maybe surprisingly, see one of the most stable Italian governments over the last tens of years. What is it about Giorgio Maloney who's, oh, and, and, and the government which is so stable? Anyone in Zurich want to throw in for that one? Well, I, I mean, I think what we underestimate is that really the huge topic um, is migration. And she has a very firm stance on that one that is popular. And she is seen as the leader um, for tough migration politics. And as long as people in Italy believe that she is actually doing something or at least <clears throat> trying hard to uh, reduce immigration, she's going to remain popular. You're listening. Sorry, Julia, you wanted to come in. No, Emma, I've had, I've had conversations with people that Otherwise, I would never have expected to say that they would vote far right. And they were saying they're worried for their children. They're worried for their daughters. I don't know where that comes from. And therefore, they want a strong leadership. They want a strong party in power. And so Fratelli d'Italia it is. Um, Simon, you, in, in, in a previous life, you used to wear um, a political communications hat. Um, tell us a little bit about you know, the, the, this ability for the far right to, to harness any kind of public sentiment. I still do. And uh, yeah, uh, one of the things that the populists are very good at is um, engendering a fear, you know, fear of the other. And in this case, of course, you know, as uh, Oliver and Juliet were saying, it's very much a uh, fear of migrants. Um, and and uh, it's so an entirely negative narrative, isn't it? Well, it is. It's it's a yeah, it's a feeling of fear. It's a feeling that the, the establishment in inverted commas has let you down, which, of course, is the Trump thing, even though it's difficult in many ways to find more establishment figure than somebody who has, uh, you know, a, a New York billionaire or whatever. But, um, you know, that's that's the way they do it. And, and it's a way as well of telling people it's not your fault that things have not, your life has not turned out how you wanted it to be. It's somebody else's fault. And that's a very powerful narrative. I think actually in Georgia Maloney's case, I think what's interesting is that, um, you know, again, as as uh, as Juliet and uh, Oliver were saying, she's been remarkably successful. I mean, there was an assumption that she would crash and burn very quickly, but um, she actually has uh, kept the lid on things, kept things moving. I think the point is she sort of positioned herself as the kind of responsible populist right, if you like, compared to 
uh, Matteo Salvini and, and his uh, gang who are seen as the irresponsible uh, uh, populist right. Um, and I think for the, re the rest of Europe, um, the fact that she's been sound as they would see it on Ukraine and Russia, I think has been very reassuring. I think the problem for her will come, not politically, but actually economically, that um, Italian debt is already 140% of the country's uh, GDP and it's rising. And so, uh, and she has her own ideas about economics, which many people would say are not really going to benefit uh, the Italian economy in the long run. So I think that is probably the, the bear trap that's awaiting her. Thank you for that, Simon. Simon Brooks joining me in the studio in London on today's episode of Monocle on Sunday. In Zurich, we have Juliet Lindley and Oliver Strybus. And now we cast our net even further because we head now to Turkey for a roundup of what's making news now. There. A very good morning to Hannah Lucinda-Smith, our Istanbul correspondent. How's Istanbul looking this morning? Istanbul is looking extremely unseasonably sunny. It's been 24, 25 degrees this weekend, which is not normal even here. So what's, what, do, what do the people of Istanbul do when they're given an enormous splurge of sun? Uh, much the same as people in London do. They tend to all head out uh, to the parks. We haven't got as many parks as in London, sadly, but uh, tend to head out to the parks, to the Bosphorus. Uh, just looking out my window, I can see a lot of people uh, sort of walking around, going in the shops, going for coffees. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it brings people out onto the streets. It's a nice perky Sunday in Istanbul. Good to hear it. Um, let's get the news from where you are. We have uh, the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, doing what appears to be a sort of an utterly thankless task of touring the big players in Israel, talking to the Jordanians, talking to the Saudis, talking to whoever wants to talk to him about what's going on in, in Gaza. And he's now, well, Istanbul's on the list, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Blinken's going to be arriving in Turkey uh, later today and then meeting with President Erdogan tomorrow. And I think in that tough schedule, it's going to be one of the one of the hardest meetings that he has to do. Erdogan has placed himself very firmly uh, on the side, not just of Palestinians, but of Hamas. At a, at a big rally last weekend, he said, not for the first time, Hamas is not a terrorist organization. Uh, he accused Israel of war crimes. This is something that plays really, really well with his voter base here in Turkey, which is uh, overwhelmingly kind of conservative Muslim. Also in the broader population in Turkey, you, you find sort of you know broad sympathy for Palestine, although not I have to say for Hamas, you know, talking to most people here, um, particularly people on the more secular side of the spectrum, they will say they'll be quite nuanced about it and say, well, look, we feel for the Palestinians. But, um, uh, you know, what happened to the Israelis was also awful. But President Erdogan's really made it his brand to try and present himself as the kind of protector of Palestinians, the person who's talking about them most on the world stage, which is all well and good at home, but internationally poses some problems. You know, Turkey had only just restored its diplomatic relations with Israel a year ago after a decade of really, really rocky ties. You know, twice they'd cut off diplomatic uh, relations, you know, spats playing out in public. Um, and now both sides have recalled their ambassadors again for, for consultations. Um, and it's sort of difficult to see how Erdogan can really row back on what he's been saying domestically. But, you know, Blinken here in Turkey is going to want to keep Erdogan in that international fold at least for long enough uh, to allow Sweden to join NATO. That's one of the things that uh, the West is banking on Erdogan for. 
There's an interesting distinction here, isn't there? That that Erdogan is is the one who has said that he he's he's spoken to the Hamas Politburo chief about the possibility of bringing Gazan wounded to Turkey for treatment. And this is a report from 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 the middle of last month. But so many other world leaders and and, and countries have positioned themselves in the most delicate way possible by saying that the crisis here is hum- is a humanitarian one upon ordinary Palestinians, whereas Hamas is treated by so many countries as a terrorist group. So one wonders what it is about um, Erdogan who decides that actually the, the, the terrorism aspect of Hamas is no board, is no barrier to him talking to them. Yeah, I mean, definitely when you look at their kind of ideological backgrounds, their fellow travellers, right, the Hamas come from this Muslim Brotherhood background, so does Erdogan, even though he never sort of describes himself as Muslim Brotherhood, he very firmly aligns himself uh, with figures like Mohammed Morsi in Egypt, um, you know, he's given okay, shelter to huge numbers of Brotherhood exiles from Egypt, Syria, uh, Yemen, places like that. Um, and, you know, that's the reason why for a long time he fell out of favor in the Middle East. Countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE, Egypt really wanted nothing to do with him. And it's only really in the past couple of years that he's been trying to fix that. But, you know, Hamas remains that kind of outlier there. And it is because, you know, the Palestinian issue is so um, you know, emotive in this part of the world. And for him, it's a very, very good campaigning tool. Let's not forget, he's facing local elections early next year. We're not out of the election cycle. He's desperate to win back the city of Istanbul. Um, and you know, this is something that he can really, really play on. What is interesting is that when you know, this crisis first erupted, right after October the 7th, Erdogan was a lot more cautious. He was, you know, like a lot of leaders, as you said, sort of condemning the violence on both sides. Um, he was making calls to Isaac Herzog, the Israeli uh, Israeli president. Um, and he was also trying to offer himself as a mediator. This is something that he's tried to do over the past couple of years to sort of boost Turkey's international standing. But when it became clear that Turkey wasn't going to take on that role, that Qatar was the country that was really seeing some success with that, he retreated into this kind of position that he's taken for a long time. And I think, you know, like I say, I think it's going to be very, very hard for him to kind of row back from that. Oliver, in Zurich, I mean, Erdogan is really digging himself into a particularly unattractable position, isn't he? Yeah, and it shows you, you know, what strong diplomatic position he is now. Um, that he dares to do that and he can afford to do that. And I think the reasons are the incredibly important geopolitical role Turkey plays in the Russia-Ukraine war, where um, you need to have Turkey as a partner. That's number one. And number two is that he can blackmail the European Union basically every time with uh, migration. So um, the European Union is so afraid that that Erdogan basically sends migrants to Europe, that they also, he's also in a very strong position to that. And now he even has uh, like his economic, biggest economic troubles somehow under control. This makes him being uh, in such a strong diplomatic position that he can, um, he can place himself the way he's doing. And Simon, we have Anthony Blinken in this really odd position, don't we? Because mm. yesterday, he was standing with the Jordanians and the Egyptians at a press conference saying that a ceasefire would let Hamas um, 
regroup. And yet we have Arab leaders pushing, pushing, pushing for some sort of humanitarian pauses in the conflict. And one wonders a little bit about, I mean, it's a totally thankless task that Blinken's engaged in here. It it is incredibly difficult, isn't it? I mean, I think obviously uh, the Middle East has always been an absolute quagmire for American presidents and um, you know, we've seen so many of them from Obama right through to Trump trying to sort of disengage and just think that there's nothing uh, really to be gained here. Well, it's certainly in terms of balancing the threats and the opportunities, if you want. So uh, what's interesting, of course, is that Biden has a, a close connection um, with the Middle East from his time as vice president. So he certainly knows it. Um, but I don't think there's ever been a time where there's been such volatility um, and such unpredictability, you know, where a a US Secretary of State has not had to just do a deal between um, the Palestinians and the Israelis, which is what traditionally happened, what Clinton had to deal with, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, whatever. There are just so many different players, so many shifting tectonic plates here that um, you you really wonder how um, Anthony Blinken, who I think most people accept is doing a good job, at least keeping the lid on things, no gaffes uh, so far. Um, you know, he's doing a good job. But it is, as you say, it's such a thankless task, especially this time around. There's a photograph of him on, on a plane yesterday, just looking. Words just don't even begin to describe what he was sort of trying to process and realising the enormity of his job. Hannah, in, in Istanbul, what did the Turks think of Blinken and his visit? Yeah, I mean, this is not a, a pro-American country, let's put it like that. Turkey and America have had their mostly downs, not very many ups over the past decade. That's to do with the U.S. support for Kurdish groups in Syria. Um, It's to do with uh, what Erdogan says was kind of almost collusion in the coup attempt in in 2016. I have to say that's by no means been proved at all. Um, And, you know, just traditionally, it's, it's a country that kind of sees America as taking a kind of you know, meddling role in the Middle East. Um, you know, I, I think in this case, most people do appreciate how kind of sticking and intractable the Palestinian problem has become. And I think one of the interesting things is, although, as I said, you know, it, it, the Palestinian cause does have wide sympathy here, you know, and, and quite similar to in Europe as well, you have, um, you know, the sort of Islamist faction, very pro-Palestinian, but you also have a leftist faction in Turkey who are also very pro-Palestine. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there'll be so much ill will towards Blinken in, in this uh, in this instance. I think most people can realise that he's got a really difficult job to do here. Hannah, let's, let's go back to a story which, well, a story for the outside world, but very much a, a, a real crisis in, in Turkey. It is now, what, nine months since the, the major earthquake um, wreaked havoc for th- on thousands and thousands of lives. You, You've been back to the scene, haven't you? How how is life there? Yeah, in fact, it will be it'll be nine months tomorrow. In fact, yeah. So I went uh, this week to Elbistan, which was the epicenter of the second of those massive um, earthquakes that struck on February the sixth. Um, you know, a place that was obviously very very badly affected. Um, and what I was looking at in particular was not only the kind of physical reconstruction, but also the kind of psychological rebuilding. I think this is something that. Um, often gets forgotten when you're looking at the absolutely massive task of, you know, rebuilding all these buildings it's about, I think it's 300,000 buildings having to either be pulled down or were collapsed during that, during those earthquakes in February. Um, but the interesting thing and the thing that I was following was that what happens after those earthquakes is that you get your, uh, the, the government comes around and they assess buildings. They assess them as you know, lightly, medium or heavily damaged. 
Um, and if they're lightly damaged, that basically means that although it might look pretty scary, there might be big cracks, it's superficial and it's safe to return. But completely understandably, a lot of people don't return even when that assessment's been done because they're just simply too traumatized. They look at these kind of huge cracks in their buildings. Maybe they haven't got the means to repair them themselves and they just don't trust their homes anymore. So I was following a team um, of engineers and what they do, they call themselves kind of doctors for houses. They go around and they assess again, not because they think that assessment is wrong, but because they want to take the time to explain to people actually why the structure is still sound even if you know some of these some of the damages are very very scary looking i can tell you it is you know we were going in some of these buildings and you know i i would feel very very unsafe going back in um but once the engineers kind of explain and often they do this kind of very cosmetic remedial work as well just replastering and it really really helps people you know it, it settles them um and then there's knock-on effects as well you know there are still a huge amount of people living in camps in container camps in tent camps in temporary accommodation that's a huge strain um, and if you can start getting some of those people out of the camps and back into their homes it really kind of gets everything moving again is there a sense hannah that there will be some sort of long-term recovery strategy here i mean what you talk about there is is the basic basic psychological reassurance that people need yeah i mean obviously in a lot of cases you know there are buildings that are just not safe and it there was a real kind of rush after the earthquake, um, particularly between the earthquake and and elections in May for rebuilding. You know, President Erdogan made it a big thing on the campaign trail. You know, work really moved ahead at speed. He even got a kind of clutch of houses finished in time for him to include it on his campaign trail. But work has slowed a lot since then. And one of the kind of really striking things in Elbistan, there are a lot of kind of empty spaces where buildings have been pulled down, rubble had been cleared. But building work just hadn't started yet. Um, you know, the government wanted to get everyone back into homes within two years. That's just not going to happen. There's human, humanitarian organisations saying probably five years is still going to be people living in temporary accommodation. Hannah Lucinda Smith in Istanbul. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on Monocle on Sunday. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday uh, live in both Zurich and London. Me, Emma Nelson and Simon Brooke in the London studio and uh, just enjoying their 17th matcha latte is uh, Juliet Lindley uh, accompanied by Olivia, Oliver Strobus. Uh, Juliet, you wanted to talk about uh, the Vatican and the Pope. Um, yeah. The Green Pope going on a plane. Yeah, I'm going to give you that news very, very quickly and then I'd like to also bring in another Middle Eastern story. So, of course, the big news at the Vatican is that the Pope has given an umpteenth interview. He's so different to, let's say, your 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 previous queen, uh, Emma, who would never give an interview. So he gives a lot of them. And the big news here is that he's confirming plans to attend the UN's climate summit in Dubai. It starts at the end of November and it's a first for a pontiff in almost 30 years since the COP conferences began. So, as you said, he's a very eco-friendly pontiff, so no surprises here, except that he was expected to go to Glasgow's, the COP26 back in 2021. But at the last minute, he pulled out. And some say that was because the Vatican were fearing that there wouldn't be much progress there. So if he is going to attend this time, it means that he's clearly optimistic for positive results. And he's, of course, keen to highlight um, his constant appeals to rein in global warming on a global platform. So, Emma, let's hope that his optimism is well placed. But I'd like to move on to The New York Times and a, a story 
story that is quite horrifying, and it's talking about the images that are coming out of Gaza, certain images that are coming out of Gaza that are real, but they're actually not from the war in Gaza. So it's not a new phenomenon, um, but it's an increasingly terrifying one, given the heavy usage of social media by increasing numbers of people. And that's how so many, especially the younger generation, are getting their news. And it's so concerning. So, for instance, there was a post recently saying that a little boy was crying for his sisters in Gaza, and it accompanied a video, and it was shared on X, what was formerly known as Twitter. And the boy has his face covered in dust, and he's sobbing, but actually the video is from Syria nearly a decade ago. It's not from Gaza. Another example, a post on social media shows a teenage girl being beaten by a mob set on fire. It's being promoted as proof of the brutality of Hamas, but the video is from 2015, and it was in Guatemala. So, Emma, um, it's not just fake news. Um, these are There are similar examples of misappropriations of depictions of unrelated tragedies. It's a growing problem and often they're going undetected. And of course, human rights defenders are horrified. And some are saying that this is re-victimizing or forcing survivors to re-experience their pain. And of course, as verifications of photos and videos are undertaken, it's a painstaking effort. But fakes are called out, then the risk is that all the very real footage, Emma, of the horrors of this war um, might be called into question as well. Simon, there are big issues with this in terms of the way that this war is being reported and indeed modern warfare is now. And just hearing words from a correspondent a few days ago, they were saying that in the old days, what you would do is you would ring into your news desk, you would see what's happening on the wires, you would do real interviews on the ground, you would get as far as you could safely. Uh, But now we have um, everybody involved live streaming what is happening and putting everything out on the internet. Um, which, on you know, on one hand is arguably you know the sort of the most vivid and dare I say it accurate way of what's going on because if you have a Hamas fighter with a with a webcam on their head and you have an Israeli fighter with a with a webcam on your head, you get, a, you know, you get two sides of the same story. But if you have this utterly confusing, chaotic representation of a conflict drawing in everything into the story, it makes it almost impossible for any clear narrative to, to come through. And when you say that, you know, the greatest tragedy, you know, the first tra- casualty of war is the truth, never now than, never now than, you know, more than ever now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a difficult balance because, I mean, you talk there about the fact that, you know, people having webcams and we all know now, I mean, the the BBC, for instance, allows their reporters to use iPhones, don't they? Because the quality of, uh, of or smartphones, because the quality of the video is so good. So in a way, I think it's great that um, there can be more reporters in war zones um, people can actually get to where the story is and you think of you know open source intelligence I mean people like Bellingcat uh, you know the uh, investigative journalism group which uses uh, information that that is out there on you know and that anybody can access not just reporters in inverted commas so that's the upside I think it's absolutely fantastic uh, and you know it's a great way of of getting to the truth and holding dictators and autocrats and others to account on the other hand you know as Juliet says there's so much fake news out there so you know the fact that anybody can take a video 
create something and then upload it without any checks is really frightening. I suppose the only thing we can hope is that then reputable news organisations comb through all this stuff out there, all this massive outpouring of uh, live coverage, if you like, from the ground and then say, right, what can we actually verify? What can we check? Uh, and then encourage people to uh, to look at that rather than just believing everything they see on X. Oliver, it gives a really difficult problem for those trying to make sense of what is going on, doesn't it? Because in the past, we would rely on the correspondent who was in the situation, who would create the story given the, the different sides that they that they are experiencing. And there would be this impartial narrative. Yes, well, if it's impartial, isn't it? Well, not, not so sure if this was always impartial. But um, I mean, I tend to agree. We just see here the enormous uh, importance of established media that they have the resources they need in order to verify sources in order to check um, the documents they see and receive um, and I just hope that like we we got a better sense of how how much it is worth to have these media and um, that they do actually a service to the public, a service to the citizens, and uh, this has to be supported. Juliet, the war, the, the role of the war correspondent cannot be underestimated, can it? No, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I don't know what you're referring to, but yes, no, absolutely. But most importantly, and this is something you and I have talked about, it's getting our children and the younger generation to understand that everything they see on a video or that they read on their phones is not necessarily true. And especially when it comes to the news. And, you know, I'm constantly having conversations with our teenage daughter who says, oh, I read on Instagram that. And I'm like, okay, but what is your source? Are you reading the BBC's feed on the Instagram or New York Times? What, who, who, who said what? And she's like, well, I don't know, but I just read that, you know, it's very unfair what's happening. And like, yes, but you need to know what your sources are because otherwise determining who did what, when, where and how just becomes increasingly just difficult and it's so it can be prone to so much manipulation what's that what's the is there an answer to this simon or are we just in such a mess now because sometimes you one gets the impression that the, there are two extremes now so you have this this chaos that that uh, juliet was talking about about unverified sources and people just taking whatever they see on their phones but arguably the role of the great broadcasting correspondence becomes even more important at that time yeah, I think it comes back to that point I was making about um, verify, uh, you know, or trustable sources, news outlets or whatever. And I think my sense is that I have to say, I think perhaps the Palestinian supporters have been a lot better on social media um, getting their story out than the Israeli side has been, which is which is difficult. But it, yeah, it does show that, um, you, you know, that, that there still is definitely a role alongside those citizen reporters or whatever for the for the real war reporter who knows, as Juliet was saying, uh, as you were saying, Juliet, you know, who, who, who can check what are the resources here? Are they reliable before I actually publish? There was an incident, there was something happened this week when we had Elon Musk um, whose uh, motor cavalcade uh, pushed me to one side in London <laughs> earlier on this week. And, and uh, Richie, Rishi Sunak did this really bizarre com um, chat, a sort of fireside chat in London. And Oliver, I, we've got about a minute to talk about this, but basically Rishi Sunak interviewed Elon Musk um, and no journalists were allowed to ask any questions. It was only business members of the business community. But it suddenly made, well, it's, it kind of 
reduced the role of the world leader, namely the prime minister, to to interviewer. I mean, let's be honest, the interviewer is not the most important person in these in these games. Um, but then you suddenly had Elon Musk, Oliver, being being kind of like the, the more important figure here. There is a very strange shift in balance here, isn't there? Yes, it's absolutely bizarre, of course, and um, it's a huge shift. But however, you also see that X is not doing especially well, no? So um, I think maybe we are now seeing a bit the, the limit limitations or, or um, of social media. And I, there was a new study out uh, this week about uh, media quality in Switzerland. And I think we are maybe now in a stage when people are more and more aware, maybe less our, our kids or teenagers, but like adults are aware that you cannot trust any sources. But the problem seems to be that the reaction is not so much people going back to established uh, news outlets, but it's just people consuming less news. So there are more people are news deprived. So I'm, I'm pretty um, worried about this, no? that basically we just tend to lose trust in any source and just getting less informed due to that. Well, I hope we haven't lost trust in Monocle on Sunday. It's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Oliver Strobis and Juliet Lindley in Switzerland, Simon Brook and uh, myself in the UK, and Hannah Lucinda-Smith in uh, Turkey and Tyler Brule in Thailand. Thanks also to the producer, Desiree Bandley and Mar- Mariella Bavan, our studio managers, well, Mariella and Desi. Uh, I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend and goodbye. <laughs>